to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome back, listeners. It was so interesting to hear what was happening last week with Robbie Levy that we are back for part two. Again, occupational therapist Robbie Levy, she's been doing pediatric and sensory uh, oriented occupational therapy for 40 years this summer. Congratulations. <laughs> and the executive director and founder of Dynamic Kids New York, which is a multidisciplinary pediatric practice that has occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, uh, serves children from birth through teens and provides other enrichment groups like music, art, yoga, self-regulation and handwriting with modifications during COVID and recently started a new company called Sensor Rooms, which is a sensory informed interior design company. Thank you for staying with us for a part two. My pleasure. From being a sensory person for 40 years, 40 plus, um, you can't help but look at the world from a sensory point of view. And I believe that people lead more sensory lives than they think, even adults. And, you know, every activity that, not every, but many activities that you pick, even if it's not your profession, it could be your hobbies, they're all really based on your sensory systems and your neurology. If you have a hyperactive um, vestibular system, you're probably not going to go jump out of a plane. <laughs> you know, I look at those thrill seekers as probably having underreactive vestibular systems, or your brain, you probably could not do it all the time. So I think a lot of what we pick really has a lot to do with our bodies and our, and our neurology. I love, for example, to plant flowers and I'm a real like proprioceptive tactile person. I, I, I could live in a sensory bin if you let me. And so how do I do that? I, I do a lot of my extracurricular and hobby kinds of things are related to those kinds of sensations that appeal to my system and really help me to be happy and organized and grounded. And during the pandemic, it was even more important to do because I wasn't getting everything that I needed, as well as the emotional trauma piece. So you want to you want to put in what your body really loves and really needs to keep it as grounded as possible. That's so interesting. Um, I have a master's in personality psychology and from many years ago, and I haven't been in that field since, but I'm always thinking about that, especially with individual differences. And, you know, it's, it's so commonplace to talk about people's different personalities. Oh, you're so extroverted. It's hard for you to be at home during the pandemic or, oh, you're so, um, you know, whatever it is, you're, you're so conscientious, you're always responsible and on top of paying your bills and organized, but isn't that just another piece of that? What you're saying it, it's, it's broader than personality traits. It's the whole individual differences piece of the DIR model, the, the sensory stuff and how it dictates what we enjoy too. And, and that's, it's so interesting to think about it in that broader light. Yeah. 
I think about it all the time. <laughs> I think that um, when um, Ingrid and Lee and I decided to start this company, Sensor Rooms, that was what we had in mind, that we developed a questionnaire for adults and a questionnaire uh, for children. Sometimes the parents have to fill it out, you know, based on their child, depending on the age of their child. And the idea was that these um, consultations for interior design were not just for children's sensory rooms. They were for everywhere, anywhere. You can consult on a bathroom. You can consult on a workspace. If you live in an apartment, it could be a work corner. It doesn't even have to be a whole room. And the idea was to have your design um, meet your sensory needs. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, my daughter is having a baby within a month and I'm gonna be a grandma for the first time. So we designed a, a nursery for her and we, it's very unique because most people design their nurseries for them, not for their baby's sensory needs. Like, let's say you like blue and red and your significant other likes blue and red. So you're going to make your nursery blue and red, or you like really wild prints. You're going to put these things in your baby's nursery. Zero to six month old babies need a very different kind of place for sleeping and nursing and diaper changes. So part of it is like really helping people to understand that just because something's pretty for interior design doesn't necessarily mean that it meets your needs. And this is a very different concept for people. Um, and we're really excited about it to see, you know, where it goes and how it opens people's minds to thinking about your space, not just as a visual place, which is what most interior design is. Right. Because I've heard over the years that if you paint your office yellow, it promotes intellect. And if you want to calm down, you want pink and, you know, different things like that. Right. But you're really taking this to a new level where, where you're really thinking about all of these sensory experiences. And like you said, not just specifically for kids on the spectrum or who have, you know, different um, vestibular needs or proprioceptive mm -hmm. needs. So uh, yeah, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about sensor rooms? Sure, so one of the things that we look at is the goal of the person. So we look at the sensory status and we go through the person's sensory continuum so they hypo or hyper in each system so we go through each of the seven sensory systems we didn't really include the new eighth one which is interoception because that's kind of hard to include in this but we did the seven sensory systems and then we look at their desires for their space as well as what their goals are. So if they're looking to increase productivity, that's different than wanting to calm down and go to sleep. So we take the seven systems and we pair it with what the goal is for the room and the person's interests. And then we make recommendations based on that. So it's a very unique 
way of looking at things because you might like bright colors, but you might not need that in your bedroom. Right, Maybe right. you need that in your workspace to increase your productivity or your focus. So it's a really interesting concept um, where we really move away from likes and dislikes and we really look more at the neurology piece. Because I imagine just having done renovations in our home, <laughs> it has quite a different impact on different people, the, the type of lighting in the space, because, you know, you can have a room or an apartment with or a house with smaller rooms, separate rooms. But now this open concept thing is the new yes. thing that everybody wants. So let's knock down all the walls, make a high ceiling and and all these new homes now that are Toronto area has so much construction in every direction other than in the lake for two hours we'll there on, <laughs> on either side. It's right. just new homes, new homes, new homes, and everything's open concept. And imagine all the echoes and the lighting and how that can, you know, affect some people negatively. Right. So is that part of what you do as well? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes we don't have the capacity with the family to put in a wall, put back a wall, but we try to at least make these spaces um, kind of separated out, chunked out so that we can, you know, make them be more productive for them. And sometimes you have to take, if you have an open floor plan, you know, most people will take their desk and face in, but that can be very unproductive for a lot of people. So sometimes we take their desk and we turn it around and you're facing the wall, which is sort of counterintuitive, but it's better for you, for your neurology, your sensory and your productivity. So we can use our senses in, in every way to help us. It could be relationships, productivity, academics, play, everything. And so, you know, that's what we as OTs, you know, we try to, to do. And even the social piece, um, Zoom is, is basically two senses, right? Your, your visual and your auditory and making sure that your five other systems get what they need, especially if you're spending your whole day on a computer. Well, I was just gonna say, with so many people leaving office spaces and now working from home, it looks like that's going to continue for a lot of people going forward. So that will really impact their, their spaces at home, Absolutely. <laughs> especially if they have a smaller place in Absolutely. New York city, for instance, where they're in apartments or something like that, it's going to make a big difference. Um, okay. Well, I, I would love to get into some of the examples you gave in your presentation. You had said, you know, these, there's all these motor consequences of sitting at the computer, such as loss of visual spatial. Um, you already mentioned sitting and laying and standing in different positions. You gave some great examples of activities to do, like putting painter's tape along the wall and driving cars up and down the wall, which I thought was awesome, or making letters with tape on the wall or with shaving cream, Play-Doh, marbles, balloons. Sure. Um, all of these different types of things. Um, maybe I'll show a couple of pictures that of some of these things, and then we can describe a bit about them. Sure. Let me uh, open it up here. We are like the the uh, 
kings and queens of painter's tape at Dynamic Kids. <laughs> I can imagine. The people who sell it to us must think we're a painting company, how much we use. So do you want to describe a bit about this picture? Okay, sure. And, and for those on audio podcast, it's a picture of a bin of soil and there are plastic dinosaur, rubber dinosaur figures and a child's hands are brushing off the dirt off of the dinosaur with some kind of tool. Okay, great. So one of the things that we like to do with our sensory bins, which right now are either closed or the kids have to wear gloves because of COVID, but this picture was taken prior to that. So what we like to do is we like to have our sensory bins be one of two kinds. So we have a bin that's really heavy. So it's either beans, lentils, dirt, um, something really super heavy so that we're pairing the touch, which is the tactile with the proprioception. And then we have another bin that's light, maybe it's feathers, and that, that's more for touch discrimination. So this bin is a heavy one. And one of the things that we like to do is make it more purposeful than just sort of, you know, digging around and burying your hands. And that's fine too. And some kids do start there, which is fine. But in this case, it was the dirt of an archaeological dig. And we had all these different dinosaurs that are skinless. So they're sort of bones put together. And the kids will get them and then clean them off with these paintbrushes, which we tell them are from the dig, depending on the level of the child. And so it's really nice. It gets the, the proprioceptive, the touch. Someone actually commented to me once that they could feel a different temperature. So if they come first in the morning from the heat being off overnight, I've had kids say, oh, that feels really cold. So you can also put temperature into your sensory bins um, versus hot later in the day. And it was just a great activity for these kids. And sometimes when you don't get a lot of proprioceptive input in your body or you can't go outside because you don't have the time or the weather's inclement, you can do this really deep proprioceptive activity and still get a lot of positive um, results from it. So you can have kids that seem really dysregulated and you know, five or 10 minutes of this activity, they seem to return back to more regulation and focus. So it's really, doesn't seem like a lot, but it's really a great, it's a great organizing activity. So I understand the tactile piece of it, but what is the proprioceptive part? So whenever you have something that has weight to it, then you're adding input to your ligaments, joints, and um, tendons. So, so when they, they stick their hand in and, and lifting up the dirt yep, is giving them... Lifting up the dirt, digging around in the dirt. Whenever there's just a little bit of weight to it and the body can register it, it has that impact. That's beyond touch, light touch, the different tract. Would sitting in a bathtub also be giving the proprioceptive input? It would, and it's actually typically calming to be in a bathtub 
and thus we recommend swimming a lot for kids. It has that sort of womb-like experience of envelopment, um, but sometimes the water's not enough pressure. It depends on the child. Okay. But yes, we definitely love the bathtub and the swimming pool and the lakes. Right. And this is a great uh, touch activity. Um, if for those of you who can't see it, it's just a little drawstring bag and it has a pine cone, a smooth rock and sort of a prickly fuzzy, um, I don't even know what you'd call it. Uh, something from a tree that's fallen down like a pine cone, but more prickly. And we love to do feely games with our kids um, for tactile input as well as tactile discrimination. Kids usually love these kinds of games. They love feely games. And for younger kids, five and under, it's really important that you don't buy a commercially made game with only plastic pieces because it doesn't have enough discrimination. They can only feel the shape of it, not the actual texture of what it is, and they're just not ready for that. So the other thing I like about this activity is that for a family that's having a hard time finding things to do with their child, you can give them the ingredients to the bag and just send them on nature hunts. So it then becomes a more family activity. Everyone can get involved in it and um, you know, they could make their own feely bags. And then sometimes, you know, the speech and language therapist will use the feely bag and they'll take pictures of it and use it, you know, for other speech and language games, for labeling, for concepts, um, you know, spatial things over, under, next to. So these three objects have very different touch parameters. And so when you're starting to work on touch discrimination with a younger child, it needs to be very different. It can't be too similar. So this is a perfect activity and it, it's just, very well-rounded for sensory um, exploration. And I guess for older children, you could do more of a guess what's in the bag game Absolutely. and they can't look and they have to feel in, oh, I think it's a rock or I think it's a pine Absolutely. cone. Absolutely. And then you can also turn it into almost like a bingo kind of game or some other kind of game where, you know, they could put it down on a card with matching pictures. You can, um, have it like an Uno where they have to get two of them and match them together. So there's always ways to make activities more um, academic or higher level and build them up. And the more you can add a touch activity or a sensory activity to an academic activity, I think it works better. Same for counting. You know, yeah, you that's that that's too. That's great. I did a podcast a few weeks back with Colette Ryan about different academic activities. And this is really, uh, this piece is a good supplement to that. So I'll direct listeners back to that as well. So this next picture is a, an empty ice cube tray and a bin of what looks to me like cranberries. Yep. Cranberries. 
and a bunch of little circles of Play-Doh that have been rolled unevenly. Um, and there's two cranberries that looks like the child has pushed onto the Play-Doh and then they're putting them in the ice cube tray. Yeah, either way. So what we did was um, we have, we kind of made our own cranberry uh, bog and it's really deep. It's probably like four or five inches of cranberries. So it's kind of expensive, but it's well worth it. And the kids will often, will put things on the bottom of the bog and then they have to bring them up and be explorers. And then what we did was we took uh, Play-Doh, we made circles because we're always working on hand development. So we made circles, then we pushed down the circles to make them flat with our fingers to work on finger isolation. And then the child took two cranberries so they could work on their pincer grasp and put them in each of the rectangles of the ice tray. So now we have um, them in there and then one at a time per ice tray, they take two cranberries and they push them down on top of the Play-Doh circles. So this is an activity that could take a really long time. And you, know, you can tell a story about it if you want, you could make it into um, you know, something about feeding or you could just make something up about circles. They could be car wheels. They don't even have to do with feeding. It depends where the child takes it, but this is a way to add the deep pressure of the proprioception, the tactile experience, and put a whole lot of fine motor in there. Now and it's what, a great way to combine it. What about if the cranberry squish? Does it get all gunky yeah. and liquidy and gooey? Yep, and that's great too. So, you know, if you, they're not that soft, although in a week or two after the bin is exposed, they get softer, but that's another tactile experience that some kids may or may not like, but you also work on modulating your pressure by not exploding the cranberries. And I so imagine some kids just want to explode every cranberry. Absolutely. And then that's okay too. So um, that's fine because some of them want that deep pressure of pushing it and exploding it. Some kids even put it down on the table and take their hand and, you know, smash it with their hand. But if you are, the proprioceptive system helps you, helps your motor system work on grading movements. So this is another example of how the systems are all kind of tied in with one another, right? So the proprioceptive system gives you feedback and says, if you care, <laughs> that you're pushing too hard, like some kids want to, so they'll do it on purpose, but you're pushing too hard or you're pushing too softly. You see it a lot with pencil grip, right? The kids that are really tight and then the kids that are really loose, but it's a great way to work on um, modulating your pressure with so something that could break. A couple of questions. Sure. My son has just started to write. Okay. So he was just fist scribbling for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And this year they're starting to do, um, is it called pincer grip for a pencil? Yeah, or tripod. Or yeah. and. Yeah 
they've given him some kind of tripod thing to hold that helps him because he holds it so lightly that if he has a pencil, like you can't even see what he writes because he doesn't press hard enough, even with a pen, right? Uh, doesn't press hard enough. And they found that if they push with two fingers, like on his hand while he's writing, it helps him. Right. And so is this an activity that would help him? Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes if you, what I will do with my grips is I will sometimes put something tactile or touch on my grip that makes me want to stay there. Mm -hmm. So if you have a child who likes, um, like a ribbed, like a ribbed yeah, something surface ribbed, or something. Right. Or you could like put a little piece of sandpaper on top of the grip. Or sometimes I'll take the wax wiki sticks and I'll wrap it around something because they like the stickiness or the stickiness helps them to stay there. For kids that are more visual, you can put maybe a little glitter on the grip so that visual piece because a lot of our kids are very visual keeps them there or paint the different sides of the grip different colors so like your thumb goes to blue your pointer goes to red your middle finger goes to green so they can use those visual um you know prompts to keep their fingers and then you're tying their strength system, which is their visual into their weaker system, which is the, the pressure piece of the grip. And do you have kids eating the cranberries? Um, sometimes they're way more interested in smushing them. <laughs> okay. Because a lot of kids don't eat those kind of cranberries, so it's not that appealing to them. But for the kids who put everything in their mouth, which, you know, indiscriminately, then obviously we're watching them. We also don't have kids under three in this room. So this is okay. for like three and older. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to describe the next picture? Sure. So obviously we're Play-Doh, Putty, Moon Sand, Kinetic Sand, Freaks, right? We, we will use anything, anytime, as many times as we can. So this is a child where we we're having a, he can't necessarily write or draw yet. So we're using the TheraPutty to work on making a face. So we rolled out the TheraPutty for the head and then we made uh, circles for the eyes, the nose, the ears, circles for the hair, and then we rolled out a, like a spaghetti for the mouth. And then we're using uh, glass gems that we have in one of our sensory bins and then pushing them into everything that's circular. And then the child has you know, a nice representation of what that face could look like. And then we sometimes will try to do the drawing of the face afterwards. We do this as a prep first. So it ties in as many sensory systems as possible, not just the visual system. And then we go to actually try to draw or write something. So that we're always pulling in the sensory systems before writing or drawing. 
And this is a similar picture where it looks like kinetic sand. It is. And you're using the same round glass beads or mar they're almost like marbles, but one side is flat. Correct. Exactly. And you're making a letter F by putting a bunch of the circles beside each other in, in the form of the letter F. Correct. And then you can see in the picture that we're trying to work on finger isolation with the pointer finger. And then they take the pointer finger and they're going to push it into the kinetic sand. And the kinetic sand's really cool because it's another medium to work on pressure. So unlike, well, it depends on the putty and the Play-Doh you use, but unlike those mediums that stick together longer, kinetic and moon sand will fall apart if you push too hard. So it's another way to work on uh, grading and um, proprioceptive work is to use moon sand or, or kinetic sand. Even harder is to make like a snow person and try to get them, or we'll say it's an ice cream cone or whatever it is. That is really wonderful for working on pressure because it's really hard to put that together, even as an adult, and <laughs> not have something fall apart. Now, can you tell? anything about a child who craves this type of thing. So the reason I ask is that my son often just sits and it helps him to stay calm or regulated just to have Play-Doh and to be squishing Play-Doh and pushing it here and there. But then he always asks for slime and he just wants to put every figure, like little toy figure that he has in the slime. So slime is a little bit more touch and the other stuff is a little bit more proprioceptive. Um, the interesting thing about the proprioceptive system is, which is probably why we use it so much as therapists and teachers and parents, is that it's both calming and alerting, depending on how you use it. But kids and adults often seek out proprioception on their own. They don't necessarily know they need it, but they're pretty likely to go after it. So a child that comes and sits in your lap is usually a child who wants that proprioceptive and tactile input besides just being near you. So a lot of times our kids will seek that out. Some of the other systems, they their bodies, I don't think are as in tune to what they need a lot of times. But the proprioceptive system is really good at letting us know what it wants. And hopefully we do it in a safe way. This next picture is shaving cream, it looks like, in the, letter, in the shape of the letter V. And then it looks like it has some streak of blue finger paint through it. Mm -hmm. So this is a child, um, also a writing prep. We have... We put shaving cream on a slant board so that it's almost vertical. And we were able to put the shaving cream in the shape of a letter. This one's a letter V. This is a child who doesn't love touching shaving cream, but we put um, finger paint on their finger and then we lightly have them tracing lightly on top of the shaving cream. So it gives them the shape of the V. 
It also allows them to be in charge of what they touch. As sensory people, we don't believe that we force you <clears throat> into touching something that you don't want to touch. So we come up with ways to get you to touch things, but it's on your terms. Where some other frames of references are more, they would take your hands and just sort of throw you in there. Um, that's not the OT way. <laughs> and so we're gonna come up with ways to get you to experience more uh, tactile or other sensory experiences on your own terms. I love that because in floor time, we talk about following the child's lead and we're, we're interested in their intrinsic motivation over compliance. And this yes. is right in line with that too. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm just trying to think of any of the other things. Uh, another example you gave during the presentation was making letters with your body and Absolutely. then um, pushing a pillow as if writing the letter in the position their body is in. Can you describe some of those types of activities a little bit? Sure. I feel that kids learn through their bodies. So why not do letters through your body as well? So for example, the letter C is a, is a letter that you can make alone with your body with a curve. Some kids don't have the motor planning to do that. So what do you think we bring out our all important painters tape <laughs> and we tape a C on the ground and then hopefully the child can figure out how to get their body on top of the C for kids who can't even do it with the visual prompt, sometimes we have to help them physically, you know, get into that shape if they will tolerate our touch. And then what you can do to make it even more powerful is you could take a pillow, you could take a stuffed animal, you could take a blankie, and then push down on their bodies in the shape of the letter C the way you would want to write it. So if you are going top and around to the bottom, you would push in the same direction down on their body in the letter C so that they feel it in that way. Um, just like we would have them trace it in the shaving cream, we would wanna make sure they start where we want them to write so that they feel the right pattern. For letters that are more complicated or have more parts, if the child can tolerate it, we love to make a social game out of it and do it with more than one child. So like the letter H, we would maybe have two kids straight down and then one across. Um, it's a nice way to get social interaction if the child can tolerate the touch. So if we have a child who can't tolerate it, we're not gonna put them into a group letter until they're ready. We will encourage them, but we won't make them do it. And are these aimed to be pre-printing activities or are they just more sensory experiences or? I think it's all of them. Like we try to make our sensory experiences as meaningful as possible for our kids. So if you know they're in a school and they're doing the letter of the week, let's say, 
um, and they're up to letter H, then we would do the letter H so that it could be pre-writing, it could be pre, you know, learning sound symbol. Um, it doesn't matter. It could be pre anything and it could just be in and of itself <laughs> as a sensory experience. But we try to make them just like with the sensory boxes, we, we try not to make them random so that they have sort of a purpose and a connection to either something social emotional or something, you know, pre-academic, academic language. So it, make, it makes sense. The sense makes sense. <laughs> right, right. And just a couple of more things. I know that you said uh, with regard to proprioception that uh, kids might be delayed in drawing people because they have to feel it in their own body before they feel it in someone else. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Um, I think that a lot of kids that are delayed in drawing almost more than writing and delayed in some spatial things need to go back and learn it on their own bodies first. Because your body, when you're learning to walk and move about, you are experiencing your body as a spatial being. So you're going over things, you're going under things, you're going next to things, even on your face. This ear is on the side, it's not on the top, it's on the side and you have to feel it and experience it, not just visually. So we try to take our kids back and see if that has any bearing on some of those skills changing. And even if it doesn't, it's, it's, it's still good to do those body feeling kinds of things. And in our COVID world this year, we didn't feel a lot of things, right, with our bodies. So I think that's something that's missing out from this year and really making sure we go back and put in the other five senses whenever possible to help our kids grow and expand. So you also had shown helping kids sit properly where you had a photo that had some kind of cushion underneath part of them and a cushion behind them or something like that. How do you do that with a child who's squirmy and moves a lot? So I like to put my cushions not under their bottom, but in other places. So I like to put something on the floor for their feet. And a lot of times where we have our shoes and socks off so they can feel it. And then something maybe on their back so they can kind of like without tipping their chair over, push back on it to give them input. And I like something that's both proprioceptive input as well as touch. So we have corduroy, we have things with gel, we have things that have ridges so that you can feel them. We use um, vibration pillows for your feet um, so that that helps kids sometimes stay as they're getting the input that they need. Um, sometimes we put bands across the bottom of their chair, like resistance bands that they can push their feet up against to get some proprioceptive input. 
And not that we want kids sitting for too long, but there are times when we want them sitting and this helps them to get the input and maintain um, you know, their postural alignment. And along that, along the lines of regulation, helping them stay regulated while they're sitting, Definitely. you gave some really good examples of how to stay regulated with breath. So blowing a cotton ball through a straw. Absolutely. So we haven't really been able to do that this year because of COVID. So we haven't really been doing a lot of our straw activities, but people sometimes forget about breath with regulation. So it's really important to make sure our kids are breathing well and to watch their breath to see as a sign that dysregulation is coming or about to happen. So to counteract that a little bit, because a lot of little kids don't know how to breathe well, either their inhalations or exhalations are either too short or they're too fast or they're too long. Um, we will play games with straws and breathing. So sometimes we'll take a feather or a cotton ball and put a child down on their belly and we'll have a soccer race with a, with a straw and a, and a cotton ball. It's really fun for them. They have no idea that we're working on breathing and you watch them and you see how strong their strength is. And if, it, if they can't do a cotton ball, then you can pull the cotton ball in half and do a half. If they can't do that, you could do a feather. We've used pieces of tissue that are really light for them to blow. And then you can either do it with them, which I love. Um, you could do it face to face with them on your bellies, doing it back and forth. And those are all great ways to play with breath um, and help to have kids get stronger and stay regulated. And we haven't talked at all about auditory, but I know that you did have a few pictures of auditory activities. Do you want to talk about that for a couple seconds? Sure. Um, we use different auditory systems to keep kids regulated. Um, we have a program called uh, Vital Links Therapeutic Listening that we do, but we also use music either in the background or on headphones. And we use the over the ear headphones that can help kids stay regulated. So some of the nature um, sounds, drumming sounds can be helpful. Um, you have to know your child. Sometimes they do well with uh, bird kinds of sounds or waves, but I do like the nature ones better because they're not too rhythmical and you have sounds coming in and out. So you have to sort of watch your child and see you know, what calms them down and what upstarts them. So sometimes if they're really slouched down and unengaged, you actually might wanna use more stimulating sounds briefly to get them you know, more extension and more productive. And there's other times if your child's getting overwhelmed, you might want to use sounds for a more calming purpose. I think that the computer sounds are limited to 
people talking. <laughs> um, and then in computer games, a lot of them can be very excitatory. You know, things, whistles, things blowing up, you know, so we, we have to be careful about the different kinds of sounds. And I'm not talking loudness, but just the types of sounds that we listen to. Yeah. Case in point, my son playing Mario Kart, you can hear him through the whole house. He's like jumping up and down going, ah, get him. Yeah. Like just constantly screaming nonstop right. all the time. Right. <laughs> Um, okay, well, just to end off, I wanted to go over the theory of loose parts, because that's something that was received very well, too, where you put just a ton of stuff out there and see what the kids do with it. Right. And I guess that also tells you a little bit about their stage of play, if they are simply, you know, just throwing things around versus trying to create, build something. One of the things I like about theory of loose parts. And I think it also depends on the level of your child and, you know, which capacity they're in. But um, I mean, with, yeah, which capacity they're in. You want to make sure that you put things that kind of don't go together. But the best thing that this works on is, is the ideation part of motor planning, which is the coming up with the idea for something. Um, many of the schools and the therapies that kids participate in are very adult driven and they're being told what to do. So their ability to be creative is limited and this allows them to have an opportunity of just like, here's some stuff. I'm not gonna tell you the right or wrong way to do this. And let's just see what you come up with and everything's good, except for hurting somebody. <laughs> right. But everything's good. So there's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. Like, let's just see what we come up with. And that is an opportunity that in today's world, kids have many limitations on. And when you think about even a computer, as exciting as a computer game might be, it's still telling you sort of what to do, right? Unless you have one of those design kind of games or something like that. But sometimes parents will even say, well, this is educational. So we have a boat going across the, the screen and the child has to pick out a letter. While it's educational, the child is not creating. And so we have to just make sure that whether it's theory of loose parts or when they're younger, just manipulatives that don't look like something and it's more open-ended that we give our kids the opportunity to be creative. If you give them a doll, it's a doll. But if you give them blocks and you wanna see just without faces on them, what do they come up with? What do they make? And where can we, um, you know, how can we scaffold them to go up the ladder, even if it takes three months to just do something a little bit different than before, but moving them up that ladder. Awesome. Awesome. A huge thank you out to Robbie Levy, occupational therapist at Dynamic Kids New York, 
for two wonderful podcasts. If you missed part one, please go back to affectautism.com. We covered so much information last week that was so valuable, especially for parents trying to figure out how to help our kids during COVID. So please go back and listen to that. If you haven't, check out the website for links to things that we discussed at today's podcast, including the link to Sensor Rooms and Dynamic Kids New York. Thanks for listening. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15, that's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. This episode of Affect Autism was brought to you by AffectAutism.com. This is an independent endeavor on my part without any sponsorship. Please consider supporting the podcast and the website for as little as $5 US a month to receive extra bonuses, including floor time videos access, your questions answered on upcoming podcasts, my weekly insights video with my takeaways from each podcast, and more. You can become a member or a star member of Affect Autism at patreon.com slash affectautism.